Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Are we seeing the beginnings of perhaps a dollar rebound? Here to talk about that is uh, Mark Chandler, Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. And Mark, you join us on a great day because we're finally getting a breather from the great weakening of the greenback. We're seeing a little bit of a rebound against uh, comparable currencies. Do you think this signals the beginning of a larger turnaround? At least I wish it did, but I'm afraid that it probably doesn't. So far, the dollar's bounce here has been fairly shallow. And it comes after, like you say, after several days of real hammering. You know, the dollar's been falling quite sharply, uh, not quite, but almost uninterrupted since the middle of December. And so I think today we're seeing just, uh, you know, we had followed through dollar selling yesterday when the U.S. markets were closed, done in thin trading. And I think that this is just sort of what I'd call maybe even a dead cat bounce. So, uh, Mark, can you just give us a sense of what's driving the dollar, what's driving the dollar weakness? I mean, you have certainly the euro strength, you have global growth that's accelerated in other regions more than in the U.S., but what's the main factor people should be looking at? Yeah, Lisa, you asked me the $2 million question because, frankly, I was in the camp that thought that wider interest rate differentials with the Fed tightening, the tax cuts in the U.S., uh, the attractiveness of through the deregulation, the attractiveness of the U.S. as a point for investment, uh, we've got inflation expectations rising, all these things that I think should be good for the dollar, and it's not. And so when I talk to people, I try to listen to why they are saying that they think the euro is going up. That's what it primarily is. It's more the euro going up than perhaps other currencies going up. And they say that many people think that the ECB is close to exiting its monetary policy. And as you know, the ECB's tapering this year went down from $60 billion a month asset purchases in the last nine months of last year, cutting them in half to $30 billion a month this year. And some other officials talking over the weekend sound kind of hawkish, talking about the sequence of events and maybe raising interest rates before the market previously anticipated. Mark Chandler, is a lower value U.S. dollar better for U.S. equities? I hear what you're saying, Tim. I, I know a lot of people think so because they, they think that the logic on something like this, uh, the weaker dollar means that U.S. can export more. And when the U.S. exports more, those foreign currency it gets can then be translated into greater dollars, boosts earnings. And it sounds all reasonable and everything, but I think that you'll find plenty of times when the U.S. dollar was strong and corporate America was still reporting record profits. You know, the corporate earnings season is kicking off formally this week. And People are expecting strong earnings. Last year, the dollar fell, and uh, corporate earnings looked to be up, say, something like 12% year over year. When the bigger picture, I think that, for me, the reason I'm not fully aboard that kind of view is that the U.S. does not service foreign markets primarily by exporting. Building locally, selling locally is really the key. And so a lot of U.S. businesses, while they export and build locally, they also, when they build locally, incur local costs. So they'll have to pay those German workers higher wages or those Czech workers higher wages. And so that offsets some of the beneficial impact, I think. But in general, I think the best level for the dollar, actually, it turns out that a strong dollar, if it's backed by a strong economy, is actually good for corporate America. All right. So having said that, should we look for higher prices for energy and commodities such as gold? 
Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there, and I do think that because a lot of these commodities are priced in dollars, like gold or oil, when the dollar was falling out of bed over the last several weeks, uh, we did see upward pressure on commodities. And today, of course, just the opposite, softer dollars, softer gold, softer iron ore, softer base metals, softer oil. I'm just not sure that that is something to hang your one's hat on. I think if you think the dollar is going to fall, you should be short the dollar in various times away, long foreign equities, for example, or long foreign bonds. But if you think that if you if you have a view on commodities, I, I would trade that. I think it would best serve by trading as close to our views as possible. Mark, you know, it seems increasingly like the consensus trade, the dollar will weaken more. And I'm wondering, what's the risk scenario that upends that? Yeah, well, the risk scenario is really what I've been still counting on. And that is that, is that continued interest rate increases by the Federal Reserve. And by that, I mean, it's kind of interesting what happens. So if you are a uh, – that, that interest rate differential, I think, is the incentive structure that investors monitor closely. And what the incentive structure telling you is that you're paid to be long U.S. dollars by an increasing amount. And I don't think that the ECB raises interest rates this year. I don't think the BOJ raises interest rates this year. I think they were still at least a year, perhaps maybe a year and a half to two years, away from this divergence peaking. And so I'd still say the Federal Reserve is like they raise interest rates, and it's going to cost people an increasing amount to be short the U.S. dollar. Mark Chandler, can you give us your thoughts on the value of the Chinese yuan, the renminbi, and what the Chinese government's long-term plan is for the currency? Well, I don't know if I could tell you what the government's long-term plan is. I know they want to be more international, but I think that they have a lot of stumbling blocks. So the big news over the weekend, really, or yesterday, was when the Bundesbank official indicated that the German central bank had put RMB in reserves. Right. And the, shortly thereafter, the French announced that they had already done the same thing. It's not so surprising. About, a, about a six months ago or so, June of last year, the ECB itself announced that it had bought about 500 million euros worth of Chinese RMB to put in reserves. And interestingly, interestingly, they said that they reduced their dollar holdings to buy China. But we've got to keep this in perspective. There is something on the magnitude of $11.4 trillion of reserves. The Chinese yuan makes up about, about $107 million. Excuse me, $107 billion very small. It's, it's about 1% of global reserves. This is not the beginning of the Chinese yuan replacing the dollar. Chinese officials themselves recognize that, and they, they seem to be more circumspect about the role of China. And they have really a more strategic view. Well, I hear a lot of people talking about, about China and the end of the petrodollar, the beginning of a petro RMB, the launching eventually, they say, of, a, of an RMB denominated oil contract. People are People in the private sector and the markets are talking about the dollars going to be replaced. But I find that sometimes the price action influences the news, and sometimes the news impacts the price action. This is one of the times where I think a falling dollar is getting all these kind of like conspiracy theories and the, how the dollar is going to be dethroned out of the woodwork, these ideas. And I think that the RMB is nowhere close. The dollar makes up about 63% of the world's reserves. The RMB a little bit more than 1%. All right. Thanks for putting it into perspective for us. Mark Chandler is the Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman.
The question of need. Does anyone really need an SUV that goes from 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds or can do 190 miles per hour? Does anyone need 641 horses streaming behind them? Is it in yellow? It is in yellow or it can be in yellow. And it is the new Lamborghini SUV. It is called the Urus. And it joined now by the global chief executive of Automobili Lamborghini is Stefano Domenicali. Thank you for being here in our studios. Much appreciated. Uh, what was the uh, thinking behind the creation of the Urus? Because there are already a variety of high luxury SUVs, even from the likes of Bentley and the likes of Audi and so on that you could call luxury. What inspired the Lamborghini brand to want to make their mark in this market? Well, I would say that the inspiration came from the knowledge of the market. We as Lamborghini are a super sport brand, and that is pretty clear. And that will be always in the future. But we reckon that the market in the SUV segment is growing all around the world. And there was a perfect occasion to enlarge the portfolio offer to the customer because at the end of the day, we are talking about uh, product or cars or uh, luxury goods that are uh, not necessary to have. It's a status. It's something that you want to have because you want to position yourself in a certain way. So we saw the potential of being different also in this segment. That's the reason why we start this kind of uh, new project. Okay. So when we talk about necessity, how much would this SUV cost? Uh, in, uh, in, um, in, uh, here in the United States, will be around $200,000. And, uh, and then, of course, the lease price is a uh, discussion because I know the market uh, of the United States is mainly working on that. And I think we're going to have a great offer, a great opportunity to give to our customer here. Which uh, country or where, where do you think that most of the customers for this particular vehicle will come from? I would say the, the success of this after the first couple of weeks when we launched the car is enormous all around the world. What is incredible is to see that uh, the real question that we need to answer is how many non-Lamborghini customers are gonna buy the new SUV? Because of course, as you know, today, the, our uh, normal customer, if I may say normal, uh, don't use that car every day. But with the new super SUV, they're gonna use that car every day. Therefore, it's not only having the added one by one customer that are already in the Lamborghini family, but the, the interesting thing will be to see how many potential uh, customers will come from other brands because they will be maybe interested to see our car. They love our design. They love our performance. They love to be uh, connected with the Lamborghini family. So the real question will be uh, how many products we're going to be able to catch in the future. And this is something that at least for after the first couple of weeks of uh, the first launch around the world, we see there is a lot of attention. I note that you can customize this almost every way you can imagine, right? 14 exterior colors to choose from, 15 interior leather options, headrests. You can get them embossed with the Raging Bull logo. I mean, just customization seems to be the real, uh, the real deal here. Is, um, uh, is the factory that is building these in uh, San Agata Bolognese, is, is that factory going to do all the customization or does that get farmed out? Now it will be done all in, in, in Sant'Agata de Bolognese in Italy. We are close to Bologna. Uh, there was a big challenge because in one year, just one year, we built a completely new line of assembly. We doubled the dimension of a factory. We hired more than 100 people to make sure that uh, this was possible to do it. That, the reason why we, we use the claim since we made it possible 
for the launch of this vehicle because you know if you think what was Lamborghini just a couple of years ago no one would have thought it was possible right therefore the personalization is a very important item for our customer that will be done by us so I'm seeing a headline uh, crossing the Bloomberg today that Ferrari a competitor of yours uh, is planning to make an electric supercar um, I'm wondering is that in your future well in uh, I would say September we launched the third millennium project it was a car that we presented together with the MIT in Boston because we have a research that is uh, making sure that we are also ahead in that respect. So we have already launched that uh, idea on our side. And uh, I think that is natural, that is logical uh, to also to be a trendsetter in, the, in this, in this uh, new dimension. But when could that car actually be marketed? I would say, realistically speaking, uh, after in, in the second part of the 2025, 2013, that range will be ready. I think because we need to be current with a couple of elements in that respect. First of all, uh, the performance of a super sport car has to be there. We need to consider the usage of our car. The cost of it, of course, the affordability of this technology is another element that is very important. And uh, we're going to be there as a second step. We don't have to forget today we are, in, let's say, using the normal combustion engine. We're going to be using the hybridization as a second step before arriving to the electrification. So there is still a lot of rooms to do, a lot of work to be done, but for sure the trend is there and we're going to be there for the future super sport models with the hybridization model. What's the trend for Lamborghini? Any chance of spinning it off from VW? Uh, but currently you have co- you have a cousin, right? I mean, Audi, you could call it like a cousin. You're using their V8 in this new uh, in in this new SUV. A spin-off in the works, maybe? Well, something that I cannot answer, to be honest, because it's not uh, me that is, I'm, I'm, I need to report to our shareholders. Uh, my duty or our duty is to make sure that we are bringing up the brand in the right way that we can. We are growing. We need to make sure that we are, we are profitable enough. We, we need to make sure that we have we are strong enough with good product portfolio in the future. And then the show will make their decision. I'm pretty sure that they are proud of having us in their in their portfolio together. But uh, this is you know what we have to do. Make sure that we are doing a good job. Stefano Domenicali, thank you so much for joining us. He's Global Chief Executive Officer of Automobili Lamborghini, based in Bologna, uh, Italy. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, we look forward to uh, each getting our own uh, personal SUV Lamborghini in the mail. No, I'm kidding. Right now, it seems like kind of a tenuous time in U.S. government bond markets. You have uh, a government deficit in uh, in the United States that's expected to blossom. Over the next few years, you have a potential government shutdown, and yet yields are actually dipping lower today. Here to talk about what's going on and how investors should position is Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, I want to just start with a question about the government shutdown why are markets completely ignoring this, even as the rhetoric gets amped up yet again that uh, Congress will not come to a deal? 
Well, I, th- I think there's a few things about government shutdowns that kind of get misconstrued by the general public. I mean, the first is that a short-term government shutdown, someone that lasts just a couple of days or even a week, um, really does not have any significant economic implications. And there are a lot of portions of the government that still stay open. So, for example, the bond market's not going to care about it because um, government securities are still going to get paid. Coupon payments are still going to be made, things like that. The IRS stays open, so income still comes in. The, uh, the Federal Reserve in the Treasury Department or portions of the Treasury Department remain open, so coupons get paid. So this isn't a kind of debt event. Um, A very long-term government shutdown, so one that lasts several weeks or a month, that could have some economic implications because of the lack of government spending and and the like um, that that could occur. So you do see that when when in the few periods that you've had long-term government shutdowns, you have seen little blips that uh, that affect the that affect growth, but um, you know we're not expecting necessarily a long one now. So I, I think that um, any government shutdown in this case is just going to be completely ignored by most markets. Ira, can you speak about Treasury inflation protected securities and their use in people's portfolios? Yeah, I, I think for uh, for a lot of investors, the idea is that oh, okay, inflation might be higher than um, uh, in the in the future, and because of that, I'd like to get some some hedges and protections for that. So they buy Treasury inflation protected securities. The problem with just going out and buying um, tips, whether it's a thousand dollars or a couple of uh, ten thousand dollars, doesn't matter. Um, the problem is, is that you're you still have a lot of interest rate risk that are embedded in these instruments. So when you buy a tip security, you're receiving what's called the real yield, so the yield on the tip plus inflation. Now the the problem is, is that when inflation goes up, then yields usually go up much faster than um, uh, than inflation. So let's imagine a situation where suddenly we think inflation next year is going to be five percent from say two percent today. Um, you say, okay, well let me buy tips because I'm going to get 3%. The problem is, is that in an environment like that, uh, yields might sell off 100 basis points. And then there's uh, interest rate risk embedded in these securities. And that's what we call duration. So that's the effect on price by changes in yield. So a 100 basis point increase in uh, in yields on a 10-year tip, you wind up losing 8% of your uh, of your dollar value of that, of that tip. So if you just do that math, 8% minus 3% means you lose 5% even with inflation increasing quite a lot. So so there's a lot of interest rate risk embedded in this. So the way that you really hedge inflation is by buying a tip and then hedging out your interest rate risk. So Ira, I'm looking right now at the iShares Tips ETF, and I'm just looking at the total assets. It has increased since the end of 2016 uh, about, I don't know, $300 million or so uh, with respect to assets under management. So a lot of people have been going into tips as a proxy for hedging against inflation. And I'm just wondering, do you think that all the people buying these securities understand the rate risk that they're assuming? Well, I, I'm not convinced that all of them do, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to understand the interest rate risk that you're taking by buying tips. Um, now, that being said, if, you, if you're buying tips because you think yields are too high and yields might go down, but, you're, you, know, but you think that there might be a little bit of, of inflation along the way, then, then maybe there's a place in your portfolio for that. But, um, but I think in general, people think, oh, Treasury inflation-protected securities, inflation goes up, therefore, you know, I'll make money. In this, that's not necessarily the case in the in the short term. If you buy a tip today and you hold it to maturity, you'll make 50 basis points 
to like a ten on a ten year tip, fifty basis points plus inflation. Um, but if you don't hold it to maturity, or you hold a constant maturity instrument like an ETF or like a, a mutual fund that that tracks tips, um, you do take a lot of interest rate exposure and risk. And I think that that's something that you might see unwind if you do get a very big sell off in in rates. We're not expecting that, but at the same time, that's a that's definitely a risk that you're taking. Ira, maybe talk about risk, but have it related to perhaps hedges uh, on Fannie Mae and the Freddie Mac paper. Yeah, so one of the things that that we've noted in the rates market over the last uh, over the last couple of months is just like the VIX being at at multi-year lows, so is interest rate volatility. Implied volatility on options on different interest rate products is exceptionally low, and I think a, a part of that, at least a, a, um, a portion of the reason for that, is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's portfolios, which used to be 1.4 trillion dollars, are uh, are about a third of that today, and because they're, um, because they are no longer hedging things like prepayment risk, so people repaying their mortgages early and things like that, they used to do that with options on interest rate products, and they no longer have to do that in the same size that they did. Um, so because of that, I think interest rate um, volatility is much lower than it would be normally. Um, and also that the Fed now has picked up a lot of that ownership, and the Fed doesn't hedge at all. But as the Fed unwinds their portfolio, it's very likely that banks and other uh, other buyers of mortgages might actually start to buy volatility a little bit more. Thank you very much. Ira Jersey, very interesting. Interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us some details about Treasury inflation-protected securities and the lack of hedging that seems to be going on, at least when it comes to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's agency-backed paper. Right now, I want to turn our attention to a letter that BlackRock sent to a number of corporate executives today. This, according to the New York Times deal book uh, section, it's sort of interesting and highlights how BlackRock is increasingly aware of the actions of corporations that they invest in and whether they are good for society or not. Here to talk about this fuzzy designation, what does it mean to be responsible, is Greg Elders, who's senior environmental, social and governance analyst for Bloomberg News. Greg, I thought this was really interesting because this comes on the heels of Calsters and Jana Partners going after Apple for uh, the use of iPhones by kids and, and requesting that they study the effects on children of long-term use of smartphones. What does it mean for BlackRock to get more aggressive with making sure companies act responsibly? Yeah, I mean, this is something that, I mean, to that end, there's growth in this space. So, Jana, they launched their impact investing fund, BlackRock. So, Larry Fink, two years ago in his letter, mentioned that companies' CEOs should focus on environmental, social, and corporate governance issues. Last year, it voted against management at ExxonMobil and Occidental Petroleum, and also Vanguard similarly voted against them. Um, so, you know, this coming around in terms of investors no longer just being passive, but actually having an active stance. At the end of the day, it's because investors are demanding this. Their clients, both institutional and retail, 
want to see more active social engagement. Now, is there a way in which uh, investors will be uh, sort of not necessarily happy about this if the market turns uh, south for them? I mean, it's great when stock prices are rising and BlackRock, of course, a big uh, ETF provider. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful when you're making money. I mean, but that's the whole point. So his letter two years ago, I mean, he said to have long-term uh, value creation. And again, in this letter, according to the New York Times, so this is absolutely about growth and profitability. It's not about the social environmental side, except that it actually goes towards that whole financial performance area. Okay, so how do we parse this out? I mean, this is this is the thing that really makes me scratch my head. You know, on one hand, if you say to Apple, okay, study the effect of iPhones on children, I understand the purpose of that from sort of a social responsibility standpoint. From a profitability standpoint, not so much. So how do you parse out the difference here? It seems like a pretty uh, pretty fuzzy line. It can be a fuzzy line. I mean, going back to the Exxon and Occidental examples, so the shareholder resolutions that BlackRock backed there were specifically around the two oil companies thinking about what's going to happen in a low-carbon world. So if we shift away from fossil fuels, right, if you have more electric cars, what does that mean for their business and how do they position themselves? So very much a, a fundamental business issue. Now, with the example of, of Apple, I mean, I agree that that varies a bit more. And the question is, you know, maybe regulators come along and obviously the tech space has been very much in the focus of, of regulators around Facebook, um, Twitter, that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally, what is their long-term business? Well, and then there's another question of equality or diversity or some of these other uh, values that a lot of corporations espouse that might not be held by all of the investors in their base. I mean, in other words, how vocal do they get on issues that are increasingly viewed as political? I mean, I think very clearly that Larry Fink at BlackRock says that they have to be, because again, it's going towards financial performance. Today, Citigroup released um, data on their pay gap between women and men after shareholder resolution, shareholder pressure. In the UK, companies are going to be required to do this by the end of this quarter. So you know, again, this is very much an issue about driving performance. So it, it all comes back to that. And, and I think you know, gender issues, social issues are very much about that as well. But this is not, just to be clear, this is not BlackRock's money. This is the money that they manage on behalf of investors. Correct, but they want to maximize return. No, no, I completely understand. But just to be clear, this is not BlackRock's money. This is They're saying this on behalf of their investors, saying that this is what investors would like to see happen. Well, it's what they think needs to happen so they can you know, have the best returns for their clients. Got it. All right, well done. Thank you very much. Uh, Gregory Elders is our senior environmental, social, and governance analyst for Bloomberg News. And of course, this is a, a topic we'll be following for quite a while. Uh, Larry Fink, uh, head of BlackRock, uh, writing a letter making that clear to all investors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.